Hello, everyone. Um, I think uh, we will start now, uh, seeing as we only have a very limited time with our special guest speaker, His Honour Judge Pillay. Uh, I'll start first by uh, acknowledging the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we're meeting, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and I, I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend those respects to any members of the Aboriginal community here with us today. The PLN recognises and emphasises that we all carry an obligation to change the culture in our political and legal system that is reluctant to be reformed and so often feigns interest in giving weight to the voices of Aboriginal people in achieving their equality within Australian society. I will now introduce His Honour Judge Pillay, uh, acting as a barrister since 2003, Judge Arushan Pillay has a wealth of legal experience, having worked extensively in the fields of personal injury, occupational health and safety, and medical negligence, and even securing a nomination in the 2016 Pro Bono Awards for his work on the inquest into Abdul Numan Haidar's death. In his time at the bar, he was also a valued member of the Legal Assistance Committee, the Pro Bono Committee, and the Race, Ethnicity and Cultural Diversity Working Group. In light of these achievements, Judge Pillay was appointed to the County Court in August 2019. Welcome, Judge Pillay. Thank you, Tristan. Uh, I firstly would like to say how delighted I am to be invited along to talk uh, with you today. I hope it's not talking at you because uh, I'm very keen to hear the voices of uh, young lawyers and young people interested in legal issues because I think it is only through incorporating different perspectives that we can truly come to reflect our community. And given the position I occupy, that's particularly important because oftentimes I'm called on to make judgments which are said to reflect the community and community standards. So thank you very much for inviting me along to that. Thank you, Your Honour. Um, I'll start by first mentioning that we'd like this session to be as interactive as possible and Judge Pillay has specifically mentioned that. Um, so please feel free uh, at any time to put up your hand or put a question in the chat so that uh, I, can, I can know that you're will, you're, you want to ask a question um, and we'll, we'll put that to Judge Pillay as soon as we can. Uh, I'll go now into a few contextual considerations for our discussion of today, which is on judicial diversity. Um, the first is the Australian Law Reform Commission's current uh, inquiry into the laws relating to impartiality and bias as they apply to the High Court, Federal Court, Family Court and Federal Circuit Court. Submissions for this are due to the ALRC by the 30th of June 2021, as I'm sure many people in this room are aware because the PLN is currently working on a submission uh, to this inquiry. The terms of reference for the inquiry ask the ALRC to consider whether the law about actual or apprehended bias relating to judicial decision-making is sufficient and appropriate to maintain public confidence in the administration of justice, uh, whether the law provides clarity to decision-makers, the legal profession and the community about how to manage potential conflicts and perceptions of partiality, and whether the mechanisms for raising allegations of actual or apprehended bias uh, and deciding those allegations are sufficient and appropriate. Another very important contextual consideration is that in April of this year, Dr. Helen Zoki AO released her review of sexual harassment in Victorian courts and VCAP, which had been jointly initiated by the Attorney General of Victoria and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria in July, 2020. The review revealed the harmful effects that a lack of gender equity has for those working in the court system. Let's now move into uh, our first topic for discussion, that being the importance of judicial diversity. So Judge Pillay, I'd like to ask you, first of all, what does judicial diversity mean to you? Well, I think there are a number of strands to that. Firstly, and most importantly, and I think this is the thing that most people talk about when they talk about judicial diversity, is they talk about the fact that the courts really are an expression of our democratic structure. 
a democratic structure obviously starts with the notion that we have elected officials to government, but that we also have an independent judiciary that seeks to enforce the laws which are created by parliament. And there is a separation between those two arms. But one of the things that we get most upset about is when the supposedly independent arm is staffed by only one section of the community. And over time, I think it has led to the perception that where only one select group of people occupies this independent uh, enforcement uh, position within our community on the courts, it necessarily means that those positions are reserved for a particular section of the community. And in a democratic society, that is something that uh, goes against the general tenet of our beliefs, which is that all people in our community uh, are, are able to participate equally in our democratic institutions. Um, everyone in the Victorian community, for example, can stand for parliament and be elected. Uh, but when we look at the judiciary and we see only a small section of the community being appointed, suddenly we seem to think, well, there's a disconsonance, there's a discordance between the principle and the actual structure of the institution. So judicial diversity uh, is important because it seeks to restore the balance. It seeks to restore the public's confidence that the courts are in fact an expression of our, of our democratic institutions uh, and that democratic desire that we have uh, within our community. So that's one part of it, um, that it, it fosters democracy and it fosters public confidence in our institutions. And that's very important when you think that as an Australian community, we have decided that courts are the way that we will resolve disputes. And we do have an amazing system in, in that we can bring some of the most horrendous disputes before the courts and resolve them peacefully. So inspiring confidence in our structures, in the courts, is a real part of uh, judicial diversity. So the next stage to that is ensuring that we have a variety of views uh, on the bench, in the judiciary, so that when the court, when the laws call upon judges to enforce the standard of the reasonable person, or sentence according to community expectation, judges who come from a diverse range of backgrounds and a diverse range of situations bring those backgrounds into the concept of the reasonable person making a decision. So I think judicial diversity operates on a number of different levels, but all of them are very important. Thank you, Your Honour. Uh, I'll ask you next, uh, what is the relationship between judicial diversity and judicial impartiality? You referred to it partly in your answer to that question, but is there a, uh, is there a more uh, thorough um, relationship that, that is to be explored? Well, the first thing would be to go back to what those concepts mean. And we've talked a little bit about judicial diversity, but to talk about judicial impartiality, uh, at, at its heart, that concept means that a judge comes to each case having taken an oath which requires them to treat each case, each party's case, even-handedly, to treat it fairly, to accept that every person has an equal right to be in the court and present their case equally and fairly. It's not for the judge to prejudge matters or look down on a particular person's case because of the way they dress or the way they look or the colour of their skin. Judicial impartiality is about treating participants in the legal process fairly and with an even hand. So that's really why we take the oath of office, to uphold that principle so that people who come before the courts have faith that we will deal with them fairly. Then you look at the question of judicial diversity and you can already see, I hope from my previous answer, that if you inspire people to have confidence in the system because they look at the court and they see people like them or who might have come from 
a diverse range of experiences sitting in the position of judging fairly, they are likely to have increased rates of confidence that they will be heard fairly. They won't just be heard by someone completely who has no experience similar to theirs, who obviously comes from a vastly different background and who will judge them, they perceive uh, in a way which is unfair, just because they share nothing. So there is an overlap between the concepts of judicial diversity and impartiality, but the two concepts uh, often exist independently. And I, I know we'll probably come to this, Tristan, but talking about how judges deal with applications for bias, uh, it starts to arise here because oftentimes um, people will say things to a judge like, well, you've heard my case and you've made a decision, but it was obvious that you, were never, you weren't gonna listen to what I was saying. You didn't treat me fairly. You, you would prejudge me. Um, so when you get people dissatisfied with a process where judges who don't look like they have any of the same experience as the litigants who appear to judge without listening and to judge unfairly, that's when you will provoke applications for actual or apprehended bias. So I'm not sure if I've um, been as comprehensive as you'd like me to be, Tristan, but it's those two concepts are extremely large. And um, I don't want to, uh, as I said, talk at everyone on the screen. Mm. Um, no, they must, of course, be very large. And I'm sure that's why the ALRC is conducting such a thorough inquiry and consultation specifically on these issues at the moment. Um, well, I'd be interested to see if you as an organisation have formed a particular view about whether judges ought to sit and hear applications against themselves when actual or apprehended bias is raised. Um, because it seems like there's a, a real groundswell uh, toward that, uh, separating the judge who'd made the decision from men sitting on their own uh, bias application. So I'm not sure if you as an organisation have a position about that or if people do, but I'd be very interested to hear. And I say that having recently sat on my own um, in judgment upon myself, and I can talk to you about this because I've decided the case and uh, the appeal period's passed. But uh, I made a decision in a case involving uh, an allegation that a doctor, a breast surgeon had been negligent in the treatment of one of his patients. And I found uh, earlier this year in favour of the doctor and I dismissed the plaintiff's case. And there was then an issue about who should pay the costs associated with the trial. And I ordered not only, I firstly ordered that the doctor's costs should be paid, but I ordered that there should be an inquiry about who should pay those costs, namely the plaintiff who brought the case or her solicitors. Now that's an unusual uh, inquiry to make. Uh, it's unusual to contemplate an order directly against a solicitor, but the solicitor made an application to say that because of my findings in the case itself, I, there was apprehended bias that I wouldn't deal with the solicitors fairly. And so I had to, as I said, sit in judgment on myself. And I found that uh, there were grounds for actual, sorry, for apprehended bias. And I did disqualify myself. Uh, so it's something that's very fresh in my mind. And I'd be interested to know if, if you or any of your uh, participants today have a view about it. Casey, do you have any uh, view on that, um, having regard to your your current overlook on the submission project? Yeah, well, um, I'm not working on the mechanisms to deal with bias, but just from my understanding, it does seem a bit odd that judges would sit in on them themselves. Um, I think that perhaps um, another better mechanism could be an independent body. I think perhaps that would be a bit more partial um, I mean, I'm sure Judge Pillay, it must have required a bit of introspection um, and really looking into the matters. Is that correct? 
And I see that's uh, a very um, apt comment because it does require a great deal of introspection. And I, one of, and, and so that's one of the things that I think is really difficult with hearing your own bias applications because as judges, we do obviously try to uphold our hope, our oath. We are always striving to be impartial and to deal with things fairly. And so for me, having made what I considered to be a decision very fairly weighing up all the evidence, to then be, um, for it to be suggested, very politely, of course, uh, very politely that I then couldn't go on and hear other parts of the case because I wouldn't be fair it strikes not just at your ability as a lawyer to interpret principle, but it strikes at something much more personal than that, your ability to fulfil your oath. So introspection, I think, is a really, really nice way of putting it because it's more than simply mulling over legal principle. It's mulling over, you know, what you as a person have done. Have you been fair? And that introduces a real element of emotion and unfortunately, lawyers are not meant to have much of that. We're meant to simply look at the law, add one plus one and get two. We're not meant to add one plus one and a bit of emotion and potentially get three. We're just not meant to do that. Because once you start introducing an unseen element to the decision-making process, people lose faith. People start to say, well, I had no input into that concealed part of your decision-making something's happened that's meant the decision's gone against me. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why there is so much concern about judges sitting uh, on their own bias applications. Of course, I, it was easy for me in the end because I did disqualify myself, so there could be no further complaint. But assuming that I had said no, there's no uh, apprehended bias here and I continued to hear the case, I can only imagine what that... Um, applicant must have thought something's been concealed from me how is it that this ultimate decision's been made so uh thank you for that question i um I, I do think there's something to that uh there are other factors of course which go against it but um maybe we should see tristan if there are other questions absolutely um i wonder if you could answer how views on ju judicial diversity have changed since the inception of Australia's judicial system. Uh, is there now a wide recognition of the value of judicial diversity or, or is it quite different? I think it's quite different. Um, I wouldn't say there's a uniform change. I would love to. I, I would love to say that um, across the board, it is recognised in government and amongst the judiciary or the structures that support the judiciary, the courts, that uh, judicial diversity is a positive. Um, I would love to say that, but I'm not sure that I could say that uh, with any real confidence. Certainly this court uh, has recognized the great benefit of judicial diversity. We've formed a diversity committee firmly to promote the aims uh, of judicial diversity because we recognise the benefits of it. But that is not a uniform position. And there is still a very strong view held that no matter who you appoint, they simply interpret the law. And as good trained lawyers, we look at the law and we look at the guiding principle that's developed over centuries and we all should come up with the same answer so whether you put someone from a particular socioeconomic background particular color race or ethnic background into that slot they should come up with the same answer which is then said to mean well there is no problem with our current uh, crop of judges or our current appointment process um, we're really just picking the best people and they all just happen to come from one cohort so uh, uh, yes, as I don't think I can say much more than that. Thank you, Your Honour. Perhaps we should move now into the issue of gender equity, um, particularly having regard to 
the recent review of sexual harassment in the Victorian courts and VCAT. Um, what, in your view, are the key findings of that report? Um, and what, what do you make of them? Well, firstly, let me ask you a question. Um, and I, if everyone could vote or raise your hand, who's surprised by the findings in that report? I can certainly say that I wasn't surprised. Mm. Well, um, I can't actually see Casey's head nodding. Everyone else has got a black screen, so it's a bit hard. But um, I read that report and I was not surprised. But uh, I must say, I, I'm very troubled by that report because I've been in the law for 25 years and there is no doubt that I must have walked past a lot of um, a lot of the things which this report talks about, I simply must have. I must have walked past uh, the ill treatment of women, the marginalisation of them, um, their lack of promotion, and I must not have wanted to see it. So having read the report, it's, it's very personally troubling for me as well because I have not been... Uh, an agent uh, working against these things as I probably should have. So the first thing that I have to say about the report is on a personal level, uh, it's very troubling that I did not do more. Um, it probably also explains why I think I was so upset by what I heard from the High Court last year. Uh, I thought that what had happened to those uh, associates, those young women was um, according to them, uh, absolutely terrible. It's a real indictment on the legal culture we've built up. And for it to emerge in 2021, I think just speaks to the fact that so many uh, people have walked past this issue for so long that we've ended up with a really bad culture. And that's what the most important finding about the Zaki report, I think, is. It is that the entrenched culture is just not good. And it, it actively puts women in particular down, marginalises them, as I've said, and deprives them of opportunity. So um, it didn't surprise me when it came down because since the Hayden revelations, I've been thinking about these issues pretty deeply. But the scale of it probably shocked me. And so there are two things. One, one, I think the entrenched culture that it showed up to the scale of it. Um, but three, it also talked about the intersectionality of the uh, disadvantage. And I think that's really important to start to understand because if we want to change things, then we need to look very broadly at what's happening, not just at one particular point. So we don't just have to look at, well, you know, how many women go from senior associate to partner? That, that's just not enough anymore. Uh, we have to look at the culture of respect for all members of the legal profession, whether they're law students or whether they're first year lawyers and how they're treated by their partners. Or we have to look at how junior barristers are treated by the judiciary. And we have to look at how junior um, judges are treated uh, by more senior colleagues. We have to look at the culture and we have to create a culture of respect and understanding because only within that can we truly rid ourselves of this entrenched value system that we seem to have. I'm sorry that's such a long answer, Tristan. I've, I've gone to too many things there, but um, I think it's incredibly important. No, Your Honour, not, not at all. I, I thought uh, that uh, addressed the, the issue uh, very well. Casey's put her hand up. Casey, would you like to ask your question? Yep. So, um, Judge Pillay, you mentioned how um, there's it all begins at a very, um, I guess, at the beginning of um, a lawyer's career, and you mentioned how partners treat, for example, junior lawyers. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on whether law school had a part to play in this and how in law school we could start shaping a better culture. Uh. Well, it's been a long time since I was at law school and I actually would have come to Monash um, 
but there's just things on at the moment. So uh, at some point, I would love to come out to campus and talk to you all. But um, I, I think it, it's, the, it's the small things. So for example, you think about a MOOC that you're involved in. Now, I remember the MOOCs that I used to do when I was a law student. And what you have is at times a very antagonistic culture because people sometimes believe that you're in an adversarial system. So you need to be angry and you need to be loud and you need to be aggressive. Well, I can tell you as a barrister and as a judge that that culture in court does not impress me. What I value are other things. I value honesty. I value civility. I value being kind to people in court. So if your opponent's running five minutes late, you do not get extra marks from me because you're there and you decide to start your case. Is any of that taught or is any of that behaviour modelled when you're sitting around the tutorial table or when you're doing your moot? The other, so that's just one simple example, but those are the principles we need, we need in our profession. We, we don't need those other things which have become entrenched, which have driven us down this path where we isolate people, we humiliate people, all in the sake of victory. And, and that is just not the right way to go. And I say that very confidently because we've got the Zoki report. We know what it does. So um, that's where it can start. Tristan, I now have three more people who have turned their cameras on, which is very nice. So I'm hoping that Esther has a question for me. <laughs> um, I believe Eva has her uh, um, hand up if she wants to join in. You, Eva you can go first, Esther. Do you have a question? Let me think Esther? of a question then. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so fine. Sorry, I've had my camera off because I'm taking sneaky photos. Um, I guess my question, it's like slightly different, but, and I know you, you've kind of answered a little bit of it in terms of kind of, I guess, starting at the, the, the kind of mac, like micro level of culture. But um, I think I was just like thinking a lot about this in comparison to, I guess, like politics, slightly different context, but looking at how, I think that obviously changing culture comes from everyone involved and not just women trying to kind of battle through often these levels of like inherent like entitlement, I think. But in saying that, I know particularly reflected within like politicians and stuff, it's also kind of this innate like battlefield where women almost do have to kind of like change to kind of reflect those quite like tos toxic masculine traits in order to like rise up. I don't know if that's making any sense, but I guess I was trying to think about how not only is it like a behavioral thing as such from like men as well, but I just think like an overhaul. And I think in the case of like Justice Hayden, it's just kind of like putting these men have always historically been in high positions. And is it kind of enough to just put women in those spots to kind of be like, oh, you know, we still have levels of respect. Because I think what was interesting, what you were reflecting on before is as much as you put diverse people in roles, it doesn't necessarily change a lot. Does that make sense? I don't know if that's like me just rambling and my, main, my mind's trying to think of like different things, but I think it can sometimes be like this point of like, yeah, let's just change the culture. Um, let's just like put more women in and let's just tell men they need to respect them. But it kind of doesn't always reflect. I don't know. Well, Eva, um, I do think that you probably um, made a comment, which is a bit too big for me to start to really grapple with, but I will, I will <laughs> say one thing, which, which is uh, and focusing on this because it's probably the most relevant to my position and that's the notion uh, of judges, um, Dyson Hayden, for example, occupying a very high position within our structure. You know, the law is very hierarchical. And so 
he occupied an extremely high position within mm. that structure, the top really. But we are meant to, and our training tells us that we always we always look up. You know, we always look to the person who is going to set the legal principle or overturn a judgment from below. There's always someone who judges and the ultimate person who judges is a high court justice. But because of that hierarchy, we are always looking up, always deferring, and there is always a power imbalance because as a junior solicitor, you always defer to the partner. The partners generally defer to the barristers and in court, everyone defers to the judge. So over time, everyone learns this deferral and learns that they have a particular place in the power structure underneath the judge. The judge has the powers that go with the position. You can lock people up, you can make judgment, you can ruin someone's credit. Underneath that though, we have a support structure and you'll see two people on this uh, call at the moment or on this meeting at the moment are my associates. And my associates occupy a position where they have to support me in the way that I conduct the business of the court and I write judgments. But their positions in the hierarchy are necessarily underneath me and their positions are one where they defer to me. But it's not just in the legal sense that is that I'll understand legal principle better than they will. I also occupy a position in the hierarchy, which gives me an enormous amount of power over their careers, for example, because yeah. they want to go into the law. I'm extremely well known in legal circles, having practiced for 25 years in a variety of different ways. And if I was to start saying things to people in the legal community about my associates, those words carry tremendous weight. So my associates are in incredibly vulnerable positions because I can have such an influence on their careers. I'm telling you this not to make them feel humble or humiliated, but to, so that you, you can understand that there is such a power imbalance that it necessarily becomes very fertile ground for behaviours which you see like those exhibited by Dyson Hayden. And so we structurally have to change some of that because we can't let it continue to have a hierarchy like that. We, we have to start valuing the people who occupy these roles beyond the fact that they support my judicial uh, functions. You know, they have individual ideas, they have valuable contributions to make to the court broader than just, you know, um, writing things for me or checking legal references. So that's part of the respect that we need to change culturally, but structurally, we probably need to change the way associates operate with judges. Yeah, definitely. I feel like that, and that's the thing as well, I guess it comes into what like disturbed me so much. I remember when the whole Hayden thing kind of came out was just, you know, obviously that power imbalance that he had, I guess, in contrast to those women and the kind of, I guess, like accountability to him was quite limited in a sense because he was so esteemed in his role that it kind of meant like, regardless of these allegations and stuff, like he, there's not that level of, or as you say, like if you have the ability to really make or break um, your associates within like the law, it's kind of like, who's to do that for him? No mm. one really, I don't know. Maybe that's changed, but whether that's a structural thing as well, that well, needs that, to be reformed. Well, maybe that's why, um, and I don't, at the moment in Victoria, we have a judicial, I think it's called the JSC, um, but in any event, it's a complaints body that deals mm -hmm. with complaints against judicial officers, but federally there's not. Um, I mean, equal criminalism, mm -hmm. I think, you know, federally, but um, maybe that's something that needs to be uh, considered it's, it, it is politically at the moment um, but maybe the reasons for that become stronger so your honor it seems that addressing the 
Sorry, Eva, could you? Thank you. Um, it seems that addressing the issue between uh, or addressing the issue of the relationship between judges and associates is one way of dealing with um, the, the culture that exists that allows for sexual harassment. Is there anything uh, that the report has specifically mentioned that jumps out to you um, as offering a good solution uh, to these sorts of problems or are the solutions offered by the report inadequate? What, what are your thoughts? No, I think that I think the solutions and they're only part of the solution because I think Eva's right about this. There's whole of culture, whole of society uh, issues as well. But for the courts and for the Victorian bar in particular, note, noting that you know something like 85% of judicial officers in the county and the Supreme Courts come from the Victorian bar, um, they're very good first steps. I mean, there'll be other steps which we need to take along the way as we strive to uh, not just increase numbers representation um, of women and particularly women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. We seek to promote them uh, into the profession properly, uh, but we need to introduce those notions of civility in our uh, courts and in, the, in legal practice. But as I said, there'll be more steps along the way as we start to think about it a bit more. But because it is such an ingrained structure and culture that we have over you know, centuries really, it's going to take a lot of work. So I think asking Helen Zaki to come up with all the answers is probably a bit tough. It's a great report and I don't criticise it at all, but it's just the start. Does the response... Now, now, sorry, Tristan, we do have to get back to Esther because she did promise us a question and I saw her thinking I very did. deeply. <laughs> I did. Thank you, Judge Pillay. Um, I guess, you know, I, it's good to hear that um, there are such actions such as, you know, establishing diversity committees and appointing more female judges and things like that. I just wondered to what extent do you find that these actions may be like performative in some ways? Do you find that these are genuine, um, genuine actions to promote diversity in the judiciary or is it like a sort of, yeah, I just wanted to hear your thoughts as to how much, how these can actually, um, these actions can affect systemic change in the judiciary, I suppose. Well, I'm a big believer in that notion that you strive for things which you can see and which you can touch. And for me, uh, I saw myself having a role in this court because I had confidence that it would accept me because it had accepted others who were from a non-Anglo-Saxon um, background. Um, I might have a different view about other courts uh, in the country, but I think that's one of the great things about actually just promoting people who um, come from those different backgrounds, that it acts as an inspiration for those who are often without hope. And oftentimes communities and cultures are built on the notion that they have hope, they have hope that things will improve they have hopes that they can participate. And so I'd never underestimate, never underestimate the power of hope. So that's why I think it's really important to form things like the diversity committee uh, here in this court. And one of our aims is to go out and talk to different people. We, we want to go out and talk to uh, young kids who are thinking about a career in the law. And we want to present to them a face of this court that might not be what they think it is. And the reason for that is that we want them to have hope because there's nothing worse than being a young person and thinking that I, my life is condemned to a very narrow rut where you know I walk one step away from the shadow of the darkness. You want people to walk a broad path 
you want them to see the sunshine and you want them to think that they can participate at whatever level in our community. I mean, that that is public confidence there and then. So I'm very proud of the fact that we have a diversity committee. I'm very proud of the fact that we will go out and talk about our shortcomings, about how we can do better. But as part of that, we will talk about hope. We will talk about the fact that people can come to this court, no matter what their background, no matter where they started. So I think that is a very tangible benefit for our community. And Esther, that was a great question too. I like answering that. Thank you. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah, this is such a genuine sort of passion of yours and of the people on the committee as well. Thank you. So Judge Pillay, you mentioned there that uh, the, the County Court of Victoria in particular is um, a, a racially diverse uh, or diverse in all aspects. Um, and so I think uh, I'll ask you a question turning to the next topic for our discussion, racial diversity. Um, what in your experience then uh, is the state of racial diversity among the judiciary in general terms in Australia, not just in relation to the county court? What well, separates yeah. the county court from other uh, courts in Australia? Well, firstly, um just in case you're trying to verbal me there, Tristan, and I appreciated the effort, but um, I'm not saying that the county court is completely racially diverse or ethnically diverse. Um, I'm saying that we're making strides towards a more diverse judiciary. And we're proud of that fact, but we've got shortcomings. In terms of uh, racial diversity or cultural diversity throughout other courts in Australia, I, I'm very sad to say that I can't tell you about that. But this is one of the real issues. And it's an issue, and I have to go back and explain a little bit to you, because when you ask questions like that, whether it's you or whether it's me a year ago asking questions like that, the answer in Australia is that there are no statistics, no reliable statistics. And you might say to yourself, well, why is that the case? Because when we look at, for example, South Africa, they have a Judicial Appointments Commission and it keeps statistics on race, ethnicity, language, age, gender. When you look at the United Kingdom, exactly the same thing. When you look at the United States, several of the states there have uh, commissions which track all that data. When you look at the United Kingdom, it's fascinating. They've been doing this for 20 years and they will give you chapter and verse every couple of years, a breakdown of what the statistics are saying. And they have debates about what the statistics are saying. Firstly, because they collect it. Two, because they're interested in it. And three, because they can have a reasoned debate. Now, we, we just can't. So you come back to the question, why? And I don't have an answer for you, Tristan. But it, it is a really important question. I mean, it, it is true, isn't it, that uh, the, the identity um, of lawyers is recorded when they register for admission. Um, I, I think the Law Institute of Victoria records that information. And it doesn't seem like it would be such a stretch for the same thing to be done in terms of the, the judiciary? Uh, it probably wouldn't be difficult. I mean, I, I think I could say that much. It would not be difficult to collect those statistics if on appointment, those statistics were gathered. So all I can do is raise it with you as a, as a real question. Why is that data not collected when it is in so many other countries of uh, similar, um, background with similar legal systems. Okay, I think um, now would be a good time to turn to our Q&A session. Um, so I do encourage everyone to think of a question to put it to Judge Pillay because we unfortunately only have him for 10 minutes more. Um, I'll start with a pre-submitted question. And that is that consultation proposal 18 
of the ALRC's Judicial Impartiality Inquiry proposes that judges undergo core judicial education courses or other training that they're encouraged to attend at specific stages. What do you make of this? And do you believe that this will assist with ensuring judicial diversity? Uh, well, certainly I, I'm all in favour of ongoing judicial education. I think the notion that judges come to the bench knowing everything, fully formed as it were, is just wrong. I think judges are appointed at various stages of their lives. They know uh, less at the time of their appointment than they do at the end. And along the way, they should learn about lots of different things, sexual harassment, um, treatment of staff, uh, the effect of bias in decision-making. Um, all those things should be the subject of ongoing judicial education. And I think it would be better to see judges accept the fact that they are learning all the time. I think that there's great benefit to that. Uh, whether that includes something to do with judicial diversity, um, all the potential benefits offered. Um, I think, of course, that would be, because of the reasons I, I've spoken about earlier, that I think judicial diversity increases public confidence in our institutions. And I think that's important for judges to bear in mind as they go along. So yes, I'm all in favour of that. Is ongoing judicial education capable of removing the negative consequences of judicial homogeneity? Well, you'll have to explain that a bit more to me. What do you mean by that? Does well, that's not your question, is it? <laughs> well, no, but I, I think it speaks to the fact that um, if we do have a homogenous judiciary, is it enough to uh, be educating um, the members of the judiciary um, as a solution to encouraging diverse diversity within it? Uh is it enough? I'd probably say no, but it's once again, a, a good thing to do. Um, I think anyone who can learn about these issues uh, with an open mind is going to take something away from it, which will be good. So for example, you might say, well, look, yes, you've got very homogenous group of judges, but they all go to this training course and they learn that uh, there might be some real benefit to judicial diversity. So they start thinking to themselves, well, maybe I should consult a bit more widely as to what might constitute the reasonable person response faced with this particular set of circumstances. Um, or maybe they should think, well, what are we doing about promoting a variety of different associates within the court? Why are we only picking from the homogenous pool? I think stimulation of that debate and appreciation of the power that they have to increase the diversity on the bench um, is only a good thing. Okay. Uh, Hayley, would you like to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question? Hello, um, it's been a really good presentation so far. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I just wanted to pick up on a thing you've said twice now. You've spoken about very briefly, albeit the reasonable person test and how that might change if you had a diverse judiciary. I was wondering if you could maybe talk about that a bit more. Do you think the reasonable person test is inherently biased or do you think it's would change should we have judicial diversity? Just, you know, kind of interested in how ideas of reasonability might change depending on a judge. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. Well, I mean, firstly, uh, thankfully in Victoria, we have juries deciding a lot of those questions. So for example, in a negligence case, the negligence, um, the issue about whether the response was that of a reasonable person is decided on by the jury. So um, that, that's often very helpful, but in terms of whether I think it will change, no, I, I don't. I don't. I think when it's a judge alone trial, uh, I, I think we've talked about this before, that where you have that ju diverse judicial body who might be interpreting what the ju reasonable person does at that particular moment in time, that only assists. That, but in terms of 
what reasonable person means at law, I don't really think that will change given how much authority there has been about that proposition. Now, I'm not sure, Hayley, if I've answered all your question. I feel like I've answered half of it. Uh, I was just wondering kind of more generally about reasonability, but I think that's a pretty good answer. Thank you. Do we have any further questions from the floor? Casey, please go ahead. Um, my question is just related to um, the High Court and the judicial appointment process. So just from um, discussing um, with everyone on the committee about um, judicial impartiality and judicial diversity, there's this sense that the High Court is very dynastic and that um, people are getting appointed because of their networks, um, et cetera, and who they know and their family. And I was wondering, um, and on, on top of that, the judicial appointment process um, does feel like it is shrouded in secrecy. Um, we don't know the criteria, for example, of how someone gets appointed. And I was wondering what were your thoughts on that and whether you think that the appointment process should be, should be changed. Uh, well, Casey, I must admit you have the best questions. Um, but, and so there's a very limited, very few things I can actually say in answer to that question because of the uh, political nature of it. Um, but it's an entirely fair question. That's all. That's what I'll say about it. Entirely fair question and very fair line of inquiry. Uh, but more broadly, as to whether or not we embrace something like the South African model here of having a judicial appointments commission. So what they do there is they uh, interview the potential candidates on video and then ask them a series of I don't know 100 or 200 questions and then it's video recorded and then everyone can watch it. And then after that, there's a determination of whether or not that person will be appointed, but it's very, very public. We're, we're obviously the absolute extreme of that. Um, and uh, I honestly, I just politically can't venture uh, any more comments than that. Yeah, thanks Judge Pillay, that's fair enough. I think if anything, there just needs to be a more transparent process. Tristan, um, I do note the time, so perhaps um, I could take one last question and then I better uh, get ready for the next um, thing on the slate. Yes, fantastic, Judge Pillay, thank you. Do we have one final question for his honour? Okay, it seems not. Well, I think given, given how short we are on time, Judge Pillay, perhaps we, we wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us um, in the middle of your day. Um, I can't express how much we appreciate it. Um, and I'm sure it has given everyone a lot of food for thought in terms of um, the work we're doing on our submission to the ALRC. Um, so thank you so much and uh, we'll leave it there. Um, just before I go, I'd like to once again say thank you very much for inviting me along. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and um, answer your questions as best I could. So thank you again, uh, Tristan and those on the committee. I'll uh, terminate my link now. Thank you so much, Judge Pillay. Bye-bye.